Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today I will be discussing chicken biology. This is part two of my little series here and I'll be covering the digestive system, male reproductive system, the nervous system and the circulatory system. And before I get into all of that, I will do my customary homestead updates. So this episode will actually be going live on American Thanksgiving. So happy Turkey Day, one and all. Um, I don't support the glorification of colonial history because it inevitably involves genocide of native peoples. And I'm not throwing shade here. I am British, so that's basically the entirety of our history. But I will say I have a huge soft spot for American Thanksgiving because it's a holiday that we can use to encourage reflection upon what we're grateful for. And in 2020, which has been a very difficult year for so many people, uh, I know it can be a little hard to find those things that we're grateful for. But I think that if we look hard enough, we can find them. It's also an excuse to eat really, really good food, such as pumpkin pie, which I actually refused to eat for many wasted years after I moved here. Uh, My husband kept pointing it out to me in the supermarket and being like, oh, you know, we have to get some pumpkin pie. You need to try it. And I just looked at it. And as a Brit who has never seen it before, it's like this orange kind of mushy or jelly-like filling in a crust and I just thought no and I refused for many years to sample it and when I finally did brave a little forkful I was hooked and uh, usually what I do is I make my own at this time of year because I'm gluten-free so I need to but this year um, I think I'm gonna buy a gluten-free one, just a small one, because I have a ton of mixed frozen berries that need using up. And I think instead I'm going to do a berry crumble and serve that hot with vanilla ice cream. Yum, 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 yum. That's also a very good breakfast food, (laughs) as an aside. Um, And kind of jumping back a little bit, I know people are struggling due to the pandemic and 2020 generally being like a really rough year and I just wanted to say that it's okay if you are not okay it's okay if you feel at the end of your rope or if even if you're feeling broken right now I know that holidays can make feelings of fear anxiety and hopelessness even worse and I experience a little bit of that myself I get very homesick in the colder months and knowing that I can't travel right now I can't go see my mum and my brother in England is a lot more difficult than I expected it to be and I'm sure others out there have you know even more pressing concerns so I just wanted to give a little PSA to say please reach out for help if you need it call a friend or a family member set up an appointment with a therapist set up an appointment with your doctor and ask for medication if you think that you need it or you even are wondering if it might help. For those in the US that have insurance that doesn't cover mental health care, I also wanted to point out that um, your regular doctor can diagnose antidepressants for you as well as anti-anxiety. And also if you wanted to pursue therapy but you don't have the medical coverage, there are a number of companies that you can find online now that offer 
teletherapy so like video chat they offer just phone therapy they even offer like a text-based service and one of those is called Talkspace if you're a podcast listener you've probably heard about it it seems to be a big sponsor for a lot of people but it is genuinely a very good service and it's affordable for a lot of people it's actually um more affordable than what they would be paying if they tried to have their insurance cover it. Now, full disclosure, I am not being sponsored by Talkspace. I'm not being paid for this. I've just heard about it. It looks like it's good. I've heard positive things and I'm dropping the link on my website and I'm going to drop the link in this episode description. If you're in crisis right now and you're in the US, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. For Canadians, you can call 1-833-456-4566. For those of you in the UK, you can dial 01708-765-200. And Australians can call 131114. So I just wanted to drop those for any of you who are struggling. Please reach out for help. You are valuable and people care about you. You're not alone. Moving on, um, I've actually been very under the weather uh, because of a sinus infection. I also had to get COVID tested, which was negative um, because the symptoms are so all over the place that basically if you have even one of them, and you have COVID testing centers in your area, your doctor is likely to send you. That's basically what happened with me. I typically did not help myself feel any better by just kind of pushing through everything, including digging up 10 feet of water pipe, which needed to be dug up before our pump sump, our sump pump, excuse me, can be fixed. I did that while sick, probably made it 10 times worse for myself. So what probably should have just been like a week or two of illness has now dragged on for three to four weeks, but I've had my antibiotics. I got my negative test back. I am on the mend. I am currently celebrating the lack of antibiotics by drinking a very, very strong cup of Scottish breakfast tea with honey from my hives and a splash of whiskey. I am 35 years old. I have never had whiskey in my tea before. I feel like my Irish grandparents would be ashamed of me, but I will be slurping this throughout today's podcast. Now, in other news, Meat Butt, my chicken with Bumblefoot, finally reached a point where I could take the bandage off and let the skin start to harden. So I do think I got that core out. I got um, the abscess out. The Everything started closing up. It looked really good. The swelling had gone down. There was no more funky smells. Now it was time to let the skin harden back up. And this was good timing because my rooster was very upset about me manhandling her and had taken to waiting until I turned my back so he could run at me and then like chest bump my calves, which was not at all intimidating and absolutely precious and adorable, but it made him feel better. So speaking of him, I still don't have a name for him yet, but I am considering Pepper Jack and his hen his jersey giant companion hen I'm thinking about calling cheddar to kind of go with the cheese theme I have a cracker in there as well so cheese and crackers um I absolutely am so in love with this rooster you guys I can't believe I waited so long but of course it had to be the right guy and he is that um he's just so beautiful he's the size of a small dog he's definitely grown in the time that I've had him 
Uh, he's getting a little braver. He will eat some food out of my hand now, which is a really big progress. He just takes great care of my girls. He's just so handsome. I love watching him. My neighbors love watching him. I love hearing him crow. The only downside to all this is that I love him so much that God forbid anything happens to him, I'm going to be an absolute wreck. So I'm warning you all now, I know Rooster's job that is to be the defender, it increases his chances of getting hurt. So you're all on standby for me having an utter meltdown. <laughs> uh, in terms of non kind of chickeny news, um, I kind of was given a boot up the butt recently to realize that we've let our kind of emergency preparedness slide. So basically what happened is, um, gosh, not last weekend, but the weekend before on Sunday, we lost power. We'd had a really, really big storm with very, very high winds. And it turned out that a number of trees had fallen down our road and pulled um, the power lines down so we lost power and we ended up not having any power for 24 hours and part of the problem was that the house got very very cold and we're on well water so we also lost running water and the ability to flush our toilets and I realized that I used to keep uh, buckets of water on hand for using to help flush the loo and wash our hands and stuff and I also had drinking water available and I, I'd stopped doing that at some point, possibly actually since we left Georgia. And what got really tricky is that I couldn't go anywhere because the, this was the same day I had my COVID test and I had to isolate and not leave the house until my test came back in 24 to 48 hours. So my poor husband was like popping out constantly to get supplies and, you know, we had to keep distance between us as well. And he was kind of run a bit ragged. And what made it worse is that at about 3 a.m. he woke up because he was so cold. And he was checking the temperatures and he realized that the house was dropping below 60 degrees. And that meant that our reptiles, of which we have, you know, a small zoo load, were going to start reaching potentially dangerous temperatures where they were going to get sick. So he woke me up and we then spent an hour and a half digging up the supplies we needed so that every reptile could be put in a small travel tub and then that was moved to the car and then my husband drove them to his work, his lab space where there was still power, where they could be kept warm. And here's where we have let things slide. So we used to always have uh, travel tubs within easy reach for every single animal in this house so that if there was a fire or other emergency, we could throw them in the travel tubs. We would then have like larger tubs or bags that we could stack them in. We could then hoist those leave the, ha the house we didn't have that uh we didn't have tubs large enough for the really really big animals like the full-grown snakes and the full-grown blue tongue skinks which are very heavy bodied because we had used them for other things and forgot to replace them so thankfully we had 24-hour heat packs that we could offer to the reptiles we put them in tupperware because snakes aren't very smart and if you put something hot like that in with the snakes they would have tried to eat it so it went in a tupperware they could then snuggle with the tupperware and keep warm but really it just kind of made us realize that we'd let stuff slide we needed to be on top of it so we've been working to 
get back to getting those travel tubs ready and being more prepared. And it also made us realize that it's time to bite the bullet and invest in a generator. Now, I don't want a portable one. I think for what we need, we're gonna get a whole house generator. And this is something we've been putting off because the lower range for a whole house generator is about 3K for the actual generator. That doesn't include, you know, taxes and um, installation. And then it goes up to about 10K. Um, And so we've been putting it off because up until this last time, we haven't had a power outage that lasts for more than like an hour or two. Um, and you know, home ownership is one of those things where you build your savings and then something expensive happens. So then you kind of deplete them a little bit or a lot, and then you build them again. And so you put off things that don't feel essential. Well, this now feels essential. And particularly because our next door neighbor, who is very sweet and always offers us the chance to like swing by and get water and charge our phones and stuff, uh, of which we couldn't do this last time because of my COVID test, but she has a whole house generator that thing was just humming along the entire time it's absolutely awesome she says it's worth every penny and so we're in the process right now um i'm going to schedule someone out to look at our house and figure out what we need and i suspect it's going to be on the higher range because you know we have a lot of electric electrical usage with all the tank lights and the tank heaters and also it's a big house we actually have two furnaces to heat this house two different air conditioning units um the stove runs on electric you know the oven's electric the dishwasher you know everything like that so uh goodbye savings but hopefully this means that things will be easier for us in future and it does mean that traveling during the cold months will be less scary because the house generators today have wi-fi access so you can find out what's going on with your generator while you're away so that's pretty neat now on to hive news don't really have a lot to say because the weather's been pretty nippy but we had a couple of mild days and on those days the all the hives were active uh so they're all hanging in so far even the ones that I was very worried about but of course it's early days so I don't know what's going to happen um I'm considering what packages I might want to buy for next year I had originally planned to get a Saskatraz package again, but I am concerned that the Saskatraz bees were largely the ones doing all the robbing that went on this year. And so I'm currently leaning towards picking up a Carniolan package. And this is probably a good time to remind other beekeepers that now through December is a good time to order packages and nucleus colonies or any other like queens or things like that because if you wait too close to spring 2021 they're probably going to be sold out so now it's time to do some shopping and figure out what you want okay so moving on to today's episode last time I talked about um chicken biology part one and now I'm finishing up this series covering the systems that I couldn't get around to last time and the sources that I used for today are the same as the ones that I used previously so primarily I was relying on the chicken health handbook by Gail Damaro, and I also got some information from raising chickens for dummies by Kimberly Willis and Robert T Ludlow 
Today I am starting with the chicken's digestive system. The process of digestion starts in the mouth or in a bird's case, the beak. Chickens have no teeth and so they cannot bite and tear food like we would or chew it. If food is too large to be swallowed whole, chickens will attempt to tear it into smaller pieces or they'll engage in a behaviour called tidbitting, which is adorable and super fun to say. And tidbitting is the process where a bird picks up some food and drops it, picks it up, drops it, repeats this over and over again in an attempt to break the food into manageable pieces. It's also something that you might have seen with your rooster where they're kind of strut around and tidbit in front of their hens, which is one of their ways of saying, hey, look what a good provider I am. Now, like us, chickens do produce saliva and saliva contains enzymes that start breaking down the food while still in the beak and also functions to soften the food to ease swallowing. As this food begins to soften, the tongue of the chicken then pushes the food to the back of the throat to be swallowed. Food travels down the esophagus, which is just a tube leading to the crop and is temporarily stored in the crop where it continues to soften. The crop allows a large amount of food to be stored, which enables a chicken to maximise a food source. So as prey animals, being able to eat a huge amount of food and then retreating somewhere safe to rest and digest is a key component of survival. Now the crop, when full, is about the size of a golf ball and it can be seen at the base of the neck above the breast. The crop releases food a small amount at a time and how long it takes the crop to empty depends on the hardness and the consistency of what the chicken has been eating. So a crop full of grain, for instance, could take as long as 24 hours to clear, whereas commercial food like the pellets and crumbles that we feed will move through much faster. From the crop, food then moves to the preventriculus, which is often called the true stomach. And this is where acid and enzymes start the next stage of digestion. From here, the food then moves on to the gizzard, also known as the mechanical stomach, and sometimes called the chicken's teeth, because the gizzard functions by grinding the food into smaller particles. If food is not being digested well in the gizzard, it is possible for it to be sent back up to the proventriculus. <laughs> sorry proventriculus or true stomach and the gizzard has extremely strong muscles a tough lining and small stones or grit to help grind up grains and fibrous food and the chickens need to continually eat fresh grit because it's eventually worn down and digested which also has the benefit of providing nutrients I actually thought that the crop was the organ that held the grit. So this was news to me and I'm pretty sure I have incorrectly stated this on the podcast before. So my apologies. Uh, The grit is stored in the gizzard. Now chickens fed only commercial pellets or crumble don't actually need grit as this kind of food is soft enough to digest without. But for those that are eating a varied diet including grains they should have access to grit because they are going to need it to help break down that tougher consistency food now there's two main forms of grit mineral grit which is 
usually calcium carbonate based, aka calcium grit. You've probably seen it sold as oyster shells. Um, and these act as a calcium source and they also can grind up food in the gizzard. So they're, it's like two birds, one stone. They are available in different sizes, including a product called Chick Grit. But it's important to note that extra calcium is actually not recommended for birds that aren't close to laying, as it can interfere with bone development and cause kidney damage. If you have older hens that are no longer laying, as well as roosters who obviously don't lay, uh, they can actually overdose on calcium grit if given free access to it and for whatever reason decide they're going to scoff a lot of it down. Then you have inert grit. This is the hard form. Uh, it's often washed river sand or granite. It's good for young birds and roosters to avoid excess calcium and it's good for hens that no longer lay. Laying hens should be offered both types of grit and they'll eat both as needed. So if you have a, a big flock of laying hens and pretty much all of them are regularly laying eggs, you can either put out bowls of grit and bowls of um, calcium grit and let them consume as they need. Or what I do is I throw handfuls of it into their feed and they can eat it as they come across it. Or if they don't need it, they just kick it on the ground. Now, sometimes... Because chickens have this instinct to eat small stones and pebbles, they will eat small sharp objects like pieces of wire or glass. And these foreign objects then become lodged in the gizzard. And as the gizzard is grinding to try and break the food down, it ends up grinding these sharp object objects and it damages the gizzard. It can even puncture all the way through the organ. And this is called traumatic ventriculitis, and it's often known as hardware disease. And sadly, if you don't go in surgically to remove the foreign objects, the bird will waste away and eventually die. Um, it should be said, however, that there's no guarantee, even if you do take your chicken in for surgery, as generally speaking, chickens don't do great under anesthesia, and there's always a risk that it will perish anyway. So all this to say, keep your chicken yard free of debris as best that you possibly can. While we're talking about the crop, I wanted to mention a couple of common crop issues. So the first one is crop binding, which I think a lot of people with chickens are familiar with and might even have experienced. And this is basically when the crop becomes impacted with food or a foreign material. And it can occur if a chicken eats too much food after a period of little or no food. It basically gorges itself so much that the crop becomes hugely full and has trouble breaking the food down. It can also occur if a chicken eats foreign materials, such as bedding, nesting materials, or some other kind of non-food item. And sometimes you'll see it if they eat a lot of fibrous vegetation. So particularly very long strands of weeds or grass or other kind of vegetation can sometimes form very difficult to break down um, like rock hard pieces in the crop. So the swollen crop, when it gets so full like that and becomes impacted, the food can't move through the rest of the digestive tract. And so eventually the chicken is going to starve to death if we can't resolve the issue. And in very extreme cases, a swollen crop can actually push against the windpipe and the bird will suffocate. So one of the ways to see 
right away if you're suff- if a chicken is suffering with this is that you've noticed that a bird is losing weight but has a full and hard crop to verify a impaction of the crop the best thing to do is isolate the chicken from food overnight and then check their crop in the morning because in the case of a normal functioning crop it will be mostly empty by the morning but if it's impacted it's still going to be swollen and hard now sometimes an impacted crop can be resolved by offering a few drops of vegetable oil you can put this in a needleless syringe and offer it to your bird one drop at a time once they've swallowed it you can then gently massage the crop to like really get things moving in there and sometimes that's enough that things then will start to move on their own however if this doesn't work then the crop needs to be surgically emptied by your vet if no vet is available and the chicken is in danger of dying then the chicken health handbook outlines the following steps that you can do at home step one disinfect the skin over the crop you may or may not need to cut some feathers to get a clear view of it step two use a sharp blade either a fresh razor or a box cutter to make a small cut in the skin step three pull the skin to one side and then go through the incision and make a small incision through the crop. Now, the reason it's important that you pull the skin to the side is that you want these two incisions, the one on the skin and the one on the crop, to not line up when you release the skin. You don't want an open wound directly to the crop. You want to have the crop incision be covered by the skin and then the skin incision will be off to the side. I hope that makes sense. Step four, gently remove the crop contents and then rinse out the crop with a saline solution. Step five, isolate the bird and keep the wound clean until it heals and seals closed. Now, obviously, I'm always going to say go to the vet, but there you go. You can do this surgery at home. Another issue that you might see with the crop is something called a pendulous crop. And this is kind of the opposite of a a crop impaction because instead of being hard, it is baggy and squishy. So basically the, the crop becomes distended enough that the muscles surrounding it get stretched beyond their ability to like bounce back. The more the bird eats and drinks, the more the crop will bulge and it will eventually hang down and swing back and forth, which is why it's called a pendulous crop. Now, it seems that the reason why this happens is completely unclear. Uh, Some theories are that it could be related to a loss of muscle tone as the bird naturally ages. It could also be due to irregular access to food and water. So if your bird is going with like a completely empty crop and then stuffing their face as soon as they have access to food and then getting totally empty again and then restuffing, that this like kind of rapid expansion is overstressing the muscles. Now, thankfully, some birds seem to do absolutely fine with this condition. So just keep an eye on them. However, others might develop something called sour crop. Now, sour crop is when uh, the yeast that naturally lives in the digestive tract becomes out of control for some reason. Treating successfully at home is actually quite difficult, so seeing a vet is recommended. We're going to move on to the intestines now, and I'm breaking this down by sections. So the first section that we're going to discuss is the duodenum, which is the upper portion of the small intestine, and it forms a loop. 
within the loop is the pancreas. Now the pancreas is an organ that secretes enzymes to aid digestion. It also secretes bicarbonate to neutralize acids and it produces hormones to regulate blood sugar. Sharing a common duct with the duodenum is the liver and this is located at the end of the duodenum loop. Oh my god, if I say that anymore, I'm going to just start completely falling over my words. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, next up, liver and the liver secretes green bile, also known as gall, and this is to aid in the absorption of fats. Attached to the liver is the gallbladder and this is where the bile is stored until it's needed. The duodenum primarily functions by using enzymes to break down the food for digestion as well as regulating the rate of digestion. The next section of the small intestine is the jejunum. This is the middle portion of the small intestine. It's the first part of the lower small intestine and it specializes in absorbing fully digested carbohydrates and proteins. Then we have Meckel's diverticulum. This is a small blind pouch. So basically it's a pouch with just one entrance and exit. It's roughly in the shape of a comma and it protrudes from the lower small intestine along the area where the jejunum transitions into the ileum. And this is actually a permanent vestige of the yolk stalk, which is what connected the yolk sac to the developing embryo during incubation and through which the yolk sac was absorbed after the bird hatched. So now we have the ileum and this is not as long as the jejunum, but it functions in a similar manner. It absorbs nutrients, primarily vitamin B12 and other substances the jejunum doesn't absorb. It also absorbs moisture, causing the digestive contents to grow progressively thicker as they pass through the digestive tract. The cica is a branch of excuse me, the seeker branches off, sorry, as a pair of blind pouches. Again, a blind pouch only has one opening and exit. It functions the same. Where the small intestine joins the large intestine. These pouches gather fluids, materials dissolved in the fluid and extremely small digestive particles to maintain a reservoir of micro microflora for the proper fermentation of digestive contents. Um, this actually results in the production of all eight B vitamins and the seeker also functioned to absorb moisture and fiber and they empty their contents approximately twice a day as seekle droppings which are noticeable because they're softer and they tend to be much more aromatic than regular droppings. You can identify seekle droppings because they are a different color as well as this softer consistency. They might be mustard yellow, chocolate brown or greenish brown. And now we move from the small intestine to the colon or the large intestine. This is the last portion of the intestine and it's actually relatively short. It absorbs moisture from digested food, which accumulates in the fecal chamber until it is passed as droppings. And a healthy chicken produces normal grey-brown droppings 12 to 16 times a day. As I have said before, chickens are little poop machines. This next section is about enteric diseases and enteric basically refers to the intestines. So this is diseases of the intestines. 
Now, both the small and large intestine are populated by beneficial microbes, microflora, that aid digestion and enhance immunity by outcompeting invading microbes, which you might remember we discussed a little bit in the last episode when discussing the immune system. Now, when the balance of the native microflora is upset somehow or overrun by invading organisms, the result is enteritis, inflammation of the intestine. Colitis, as you might be able to guess, is inflammation of the colon. Enteric diseases tend to be complex, which means that it's usually not just one issue causing the inflammation. It's often a combination of infection, viruses, worms, protozoa, and even the natural microflora being upset and out of balance. And the mix of whatever's going on here determines how severe the disease is. So you really need to know the cause in order to treat, which means you're likely going to need to take your chicken to the vet to be tested. Symptoms of enteric diseases include diarrhea, increased thirst, dehydration, loss of appetite, weakness, weight loss, and potentially slow growth in young birds. So the last part of our digestive system here is the cloaca. So the large intestine ends at the cloaca. And cloaca in Latin actually means drain, which is very apt because the digestive, urinary and reproductive tract all meet at the cloaca. So you could argue they all drain from the cloaca. Now, just a real quick point. I say cloaca. I have heard cloaca. I cannot bring myself to say cloaca. So cloaca it is. If that doesn't sound right to you, let's just pass it off as me being a Brit and we'll leave it at that. (laughs) So the cloaca is bell-shaped and it is loosely divided into three chambers or compartments, which are partially separated by sphincter-like muscle ridges. The first chamber is the fecal chamber. It's at the end of the colon and it's the largest chamber where final moisture is absorbed. Now, the faecal chamber can actually hold quite a large amount of poop, as evidenced in broody hens who will hold their droppings for as long as possible to avoid leaving the nest. The middle chamber is the urogenital chamber. It's the smallest of the chambers and it's where the urinary tract and the reproductive system ends. From the urinary tract come urinary salts, which you are going to see as white cappings on the droppings. I'm sure you're familiar with them. The rooster's reproductive system will deposit semen into this chamber, whereas the hen's reproductive system deposits eggs. The final chamber is aptly named the discharge chamber. This is the shortest chamber that exits at the vent of the chicken. The cloacal bursa, which I discussed in the last episode, it's part of the immune system, opens into the upper wall of this chamber. And you might recall that one of the functions of the cloaca bursa is to absorb fluids from outside the body in order to build immunity. So being so close to the vent here is what makes this possible. And this absorption of fluids happens when the um, chicken is very young, when they're still a chick. Eventually the cloacal bursa will... um, actually atrophy once enough uh, immune system function has developed. And now we move from the digestive system to the urinary system. And this consists primarily of the kidneys. There is no bladder in chickens like you would see with us or other mammals. 
So the kidneys are connected to the urogenital chamber of the cloaca via tubes called ureters. The kidneys function to balance electrolytes, filter water and remove waste from the blood. In human, these wastes that are removed from the bloodstream are excreted as urine. But healthy chickens don't actually excrete much liquid urine. Instead, they expel blood waste in the form of semi-solid uric acid called urates or uric salts, which I just mentioned above or before. (laughs) Um, And these are the white pasty caps on the droppings. Fun fact, reptiles also produce urates and in a number of reptiles, urates actually make quite a large part of what's passed and they tend to be a lot more solid than you see in a chicken because reptiles tend to hold onto their um, leavings for longer. A chicken under stress, which includes heat stress, may actually start to pass very large amounts of liquid urine. And so if you see that, something's going on and you are going to need to intervene. Water deprivation, excess dietary protein or excess calcium and certain diseases can cause improper metabolism of urates, which results in this very liquidy um, leavings. Now, droppings may have an excess amount of urate. So suddenly you're seeing a lot of this white pasty stuff. And this is seen in a condition known as foul tick fever. Urates can even accumulate in the joints, which is called articular gout. And urates can also collect as crystals that block the ureters. So block those tubes going to from the kidneys down into the urogenital chamber. And this is actually seen as a symptom of infectious bronchitis, which kind of blew my mind because bronchitis affects the lungs. But it has this, uh, I guess, uh, what's the term? Like waterfall effect. And you end up with this also being a symptom. Okay, the next section is the reproductive system of the male chicken. I'm focusing on the male reproductive system because I actually covered the female reproductive system in episode 31. So you could always go back and you can listen to that if you are interested. So roosters have two testi called the testes and each store semen in an epididymis, which is like a convoluted duct at the back of each testy. Two semen ducts transport semen from the testes to the cloaca's middle chamber, the urogenital chamber. Each of these semen ducts ends in a papilla, which is a small nipple-like bump. And these papillae, which is just the plural term for papilla, serve as a rudimentary penis because the rooster does not have a penis as we understand it, like a protruding organ. So mating occurs when the rooster presses his cloaca to the hens, and this is rather charmingly called the cloacal kiss. The hen will squat and lift her tail, and then the rooster jumps on her back and bends his tail down so that the cloacas can touch, and he uses these papillae to direct semen into her cloaca. Now, when the rooster's balancing on the hen's back, his claws will slide against her, and this is called treading. And if a hen is overmated, she can lose the feathers on her back, and then the result is that his claws are now against her delicate skin, and he can actually injure her quite badly. And that's why you might have seen a product being sold called a mating saddle or a hen saddle, and it's just a little 
piece of cloth that goes over their back. It has a little elasticy bits that go around their wings and it fits rather snugly and it just helps protect her from the amorous attentions of the rooster in the sense that his claws are now on the material and not on her delicate little skin. If you are finding that a lot of your hens have bare backs, it's possible that you don't have enough hens for the rooster that you currently have. Or if you have a very large flock, you could have too many roosters in general and not enough hens. Um, there is probably literature about there about what the ideal numbers are. I believe, I can't believe I didn't check this, I'm so sorry, but I believe it's generally about 10 hens to one rooster, but don't quote me on that and your mileage might vary. But generally speaking, if you're seeing that all of your hens have bare backs, then they are being overbred and something needs to change. In terms of fertility, many different things can affect the fertility of a rooster including stress, temperature extremes, nutritional deficiencies, obesity, parasites, both internal and external, medication, pesticides, toxins in general, and disease. Daylight hours also affect fertility, with the lowest period of fertility happening during the time of year when the daylight hours are fewer than 14. So right now I think we're getting, what, like seven hours seven or nine hours something really depressing of daylight time and this is why my hens have stopped laying because they're also influenced by daylight hours but it also affects the rooster again totally new to me and in a response to this the rooster's testes actually temporarily shrivel up because they're basically not being used so if you want to have year-round fertility in your flock you don't just need to provide lighting for the hens, but also for the roosters. Now, what's interesting about chicken sperm is that they are viable and active at body temperature, which is unlike humans and most mammals where sperm production occurs under normal body temperature. In fact, in humans, it occurs at 93.2 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 34 degrees Celsius. Young roosters of good fertility produce more than 30,000 sperm per second, which is absolutely bonkers bananas. As a rooster ages, his sperm production declines. This is true in almost all animals, including people. Roosters will vary in age of sexual maturity, with fast-growing breeds reaching maturity at around 20 to 25 weeks, while slower-growing birds can take a fair amount longer. And Going back for a second to what I was talking about, about daylight hours, I think I mentioned on my last episode that I thought that my rooster was young because he wasn't mating and he was clearly still growing and he didn't have spurs. Well, I have actually seen him mating now, but not very much. And so now I know that actually that's probably because of daylight hours. A sexually mature rooster will crow regularly and my boy is definitely doing that. So I can say, I do still think he's young, but he is sexually mature. And this sort of decline or, or low rate of mating is just because it's normal for this time of year. So I can't discuss any of this without discussing things that can go wrong. And the big thing seems to be epididymal stones. So basically what these are, are stones that accumulate in the epididymis region, which remember is that kind of like convoluted duct at the back of each testy. And this is seen if, um, 
in roosters over the age of two. So if you notice reduced fertility or complete like infertility, it could be due to stones. And this condition is called epididymis lithiasis. Uh, litha, I believe in Latin, refers to stone. Now, these stones are actually very similar to kidney or bladder stones in people. And sadly, due to the blockage that they cause, the testes will actually atrophy and that's irreversible. Now, what I found interesting about this condition is that no one actually knows what causes it. Theories include hormone imbalance, infection and genetics. What's especially interesting is that male chickens are the only birds currently known to develop this condition. And it is more common in industrial flocks that have almost a 100% rate of occurrence versus backyard flocks, which have a 50% rate of occurrence. So this seems to indicate that perhaps this is a primarily genetic condition caused by our breeding for rapid growth, high egg production and efficient calcium mobilization. This might just be a negative side effect of breeding for those traits. I'd also like to just do a real quick note on broodiness in female hens because it's something that I didn't discuss in episode 31 when I talked about the hen reproductive system. So what is broodiness? If you have chickens, you've probably heard it. My chicken's gone broody. When will my chicken go broody? Is this chicken broody? So broodiness basically refers to when a hen stops laying, refuses to leave the nest, and will actually hiss or growl at you if you try and disturb her. And we say that that hen has gone broody. And it's basically her instinct to incubate her eggs and raise chicks has been triggered. It usually occurs in the spring as the days begin to lengthen and this affects her pituitary gland, which releases prolactin, a hormone that causes her to stop laying and she will actually not begin to lay again until the clutch of eggs she's sitting on have incubated and hatched. Now you can attempt to break broodiness by cooling her stomach. When a hen is broody, she'll often pluck feathers from sort of just below her breast so that her hot little skin will rest on the eggs and help incubate them. So it seems as if cooling her tummy region will often kind of break the cycle and get her to stop sitting on those eggs. And one way you can do this is you take her off the nest, put her in a wire-bottomed cage and raise that cage up off the ground a little. It doesn't have to be very high, but you want that air to circulate underneath her. I actually read a suggestion of putting ice cubes in the nest box as she ends up sitting on ice cubes to cool her down. So your mileage might vary, try what you want. Now there is a genetic component to broodiness with some breeds being known to be prone to this. And this can be a good thing or a bad thing. If you want your hens to raise their own chicks, it would be great to get some breeds who are known to be broody. If you want to avoid broodiness, then look for those breeds that uh, tend not to go broody as frequently. Now, if you did want to let your hen raise her chicks, it's recommended that you remove her and her eggs from the rest of the flock just to prevent another hen from chasing her off the eggs, as this could result in them cooling and preventing them from coming to term. Place her in a secure area with her eggs and make sure that food and water is readily available because she's only going to leave the nest once, maybe two times a day to evacuate her bowels and drink and eat. Incubation takes 21 days and it's recommended that you just keep an eye on her to make sure that she's drinking enough and she's eating enough and also that she hasn't changed her mind and abandoned the eggs. 
So now we are going to talk about the nervous system. This is a complex system that coordinates all the other systems in the body to control bodily functions. It consists primarily of two parts. So you have the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. The central nervous system consists primarily of the brain and the spinal cord. The peripheral nervous system is a network of nerves connecting the organs and body parts to the brain and spinal cord. So stimulation of the peripheral nervous system will send a signal to the central nervous system for interpretation. Based on the interpretation, the peripheral nervous system responds through one of the following two groups of nerves. There are somatic nerves, and these use skeletal muscles to control voluntary movement, such as running, eating, ruffling feathers. And then autonomic nerves, which control involuntary body functions, such as breathing, the heartbeat, digestion, etc. The nervous system can be disrupted by many things, including poisons, viruses, tumours, or even hereditary defect. General symptoms of a nervous disorder include lack of coordination, trembling, twitching, staggering, circling, neck twisting, convulsions and paralysis. So let's talk about some parts of the nervous system. We're going to talk about eyes to begin with and these are part of the central nervous system. When an image is detected, a network of nerves in the retina at the back of the eyeball send a signal to the brain for interpretation. Like most birds and other prey animals, chickens have eyes on the side of their head, which gives them a larger peripheral vision, but a smaller binocular or front long distance vision. Now, human eyes will focus at the same time, but chickens have a right eye system and a left eye system and each have different but complementary abilities. The right eye system works best for activities requiring recognition, such as identifying food on the ground. The left eye system works best for activities involving depth perception, such as tracking a hawk that might be flying overhead. Working together, this means that a chicken is able to view the ground and the horizon simultaneously, and this is better for their... Um, survivability it gives a better defense they can look for food on the ground and also kind of keep an eye out to make sure they're not being hunted chickens actually have better color vision than most animals including humans and this is in part because their retinas are designed to see extremely well during the daytime looking for food keeping an eye out for predators etc but the downside of having this retina that's designed for daylight hours is that their night vision is extremely poor and I'm going to drop a link in the episode description and the on the website to a really funny commercial that Mercedes actually came out with where um, someone is holding a chicken and like moving the chicken around to music. And what makes it funny is that the way a chicken's uh, vision and um, sense of where their head is is so specific that a chicken can keep its head perfectly still while the body moves behind it. So this guy is like swaying the chicken side to side to music and the chicken's head is just perfectly stationary. It is very funny and also remarkable and I love it. So I'm going to drop the link for you guys to look at. Uh, Jaguar actually responded to this Mercedes advert hilariously by pretending to have a Jaguar eat a chicken. <laughs> so no chickens were harmed in the making of that commercial, however. 
So what about eye structure? How is a chicken's eye actually put together? Well, the protective covering of a chicken's eye consists of three eyelids. The upper and lower lids are very much like our own, except that a chicken's lower lid moves a lot more freely than the upper, whereas our upper lid moves more freely than the lower. And they also have a third eyelid, which is called the nictitating membrane. And this moves horizontally across the eye from front to rear and is completely transparent. Nictare means to blink in Latin, which is why it was named like that. So the nictating membrane lies between the actual eyeball and the eyelids, and it has its own lubricating duct that's very similar to our tear ducts. The nictating membrane cleans and lubricates the eye, as well as offering a small layer of additional protection. Excessive ammonia fumes, dust and chemical fumes can all cause irritation and damage to this delicate membrane. And there are also bacterial diseases that can affect the eyes. Symptoms of disease or irritation to the eye will include swelling of the eyelids, foamy discharge, a sticky or smelly discharge, the eyeball itself actually looking cloudy and then even blindness. Well, how can you tell if a chicken is blind? One indicator, but it might take some time to develop, is that the eye will often turn smoky or grey in colour. The pupil might also become irregular in shape. If only one eye is blind, you might find that the pupils will be different sizes. So to test for blindness, get your little chickie and slowly move one finger towards the eye that you suspect is blind. The bird will not blink, nor will they move away if they have indeed lost their vision. Now you need to move this finger slowly. Don't wave your hand because the chicken might feel the displacement of air, the breeze, and actually respond to that. The good news is that chickens can sometimes do okay if they're blind, as long as they're kept in a fully secure, safe environment with easy access to food and companionship. In an ideal situation, sometimes another chicken in the flock will actually sort of take care of the blind chicken and help it move around. Blind chickens, of course, need to be watched extremely carefully for signs of weight loss or any other symptoms that indicate that they are not doing well with their loss of sight, or that they have a more severe infection that perhaps caused the blindness and needs to be treated before it becomes systemic. Um, Some of you might remember that um, Ginger, one of my big flock chickens, went blind and then developed um, like a staggering behavior. She couldn't keep herself upright she couldn't feed herself and obviously at that point she had to be euthanized I can't believe I still get so upset talking about it I I really didn't think I was that attached to that girl but it broke my heart to to, um, have her put to sleep but um she when she was blind she actually was doing pretty good the other girls were gentle with her she could find the food she knew where everything was and this was before I was letting them free roam Um, But obviously, as soon as she started losing her balance, then that was when there was just there was no hope for her. And and we had to to make the decision to let her go. And I don't know what caused that. I didn't 
pay for a necropsy. I wasn't in a position to do a necropsy myself because I really felt that what was going on with her was neurological. And I wasn't about to crack open her skull and look at her brain because I don't know what I'm looking at. I could do a basic necropsy to see if organs look different, but I can't I can't look at a chicken's brain and figure out what's going on there unless there was a huge obvious tumour. So who knows what happened to that sweet girl. But um, we did have to let her go. Next up, I want to talk about a condition called stargazing. Now, this is sometimes called congenital loco, and it's a nervous condition seen in chicks that causes the neck to bend so far back that the head touches the chick's back and the beak points up to the sky, hence stargazing. It seems like epileptic-like muscle spasms are responsible for pulling the head back, and this actually causes the chicken to fall over. Onset is immediately upon hatching and sadly death is inevitable. There is no cure for this. In fact, no one naturally knows what causes it because commercially these chickens are euthanized. So there's very little studies that have been done on the condition when it has occurred. Now, there were a couple of studies that seemed to indicate that the cause could be due to a defect of the ear structure, which would make sense because the inner ear is needed for balance. But these were just a very small amount of studies, so we can't say definitively that that's the cause. What makes things a little confusing is that there's a similar condition that's seen in chicks that are a few days old, but the symptoms are sporadic. So, With congenital loco, the minute that chick hatches, it starts stargazing and falling over and within a couple of days it dies. With this other condition, the chick hatches and is fine, but then will start stargazing, fall over, recover, be okay again, start stargazing again, fall over, recover. And actually these chickens go on to survive and don't have uh, show signs of the behavior again. So the book, Chicken Health Handbook, was recommending that when we talk about congenital loco, we're talking about the nervous condition that sets up, that starts the minute the chicken hatches. And then when we term, when we use the term stargazing, that refers to this behavior of looking up to the sky with the neck bent back, but doesn't necessarily indicate that the chicken is going to die and is more a symptom of something else. And again, no one knows why this similar condition pops up, but the chicks recover. It's a total mystery. Now we're going to move on to the ears. And these are also part of the nervous system. Now you might have noticed that chickens have no external ear parts. They just have small openings on the side of their head, below and behind the eyes. Tiny soft feathers protect the ear openings and direct sound into the ear holes. So you might never have actually seen the ear holes on your chicken because these little feathers are covering them up. A chicken's ear is made up of three chambers, an outer, middle and inner chamber. The outer and middle air... uh, airs. The outer and middle ears are filled with air and are separated by the eardrum. The middle ear structure is not quite as complicated as our own, but it's still a very well-developed sound conducting structure. The inner ear is a bit more complex and it's filled with fluid. When a chicken moves its head, sensitive hairs in the inner ear are moved by the flowing fluid, which transmits information to the brain about where the chicken's head is located at all times. This mechanism means that the inner ear is also responsible for balance. If this signal is disrupted, the chicken will lose coordination and fall over. 
much like ourselves, if any of you have ever had an inner ear infection, you know how dizzy and disoriented you are. Problems with chicken ears are thankfully uncommon, but they do occasionally occur. An infection of the outer ear is typically caused by bacteria or fungi, and it causes swelling, itching, and a fluid discharge. An infection of the middle ear is usually the result of a chronic bacterial infection, and it will cause swelling. Infection of the inner ear is usually the result of a virus, and symptoms include loss of coordination and twisting of the neck. It's also possible that a tumour could grow and press upon the ear, causing symptoms similar to that of a chronic infection. Outer ear infections are the easiest to treat. Often just cleaning that area and applying an antimicrobial is usually enough to resolve the issue. Inner and middle ear problems require accurately diagnosing the source of the infection, so you are going to need to take your chicken to a vet. Tumours are diagnosable via x-ray and are sadly untreatable. So again, chicken needs to go to the vet. And if you did decide to do an x-ray and you did find a tumour, your option would would be hospice care until they decline enough to be euthanised or to immediately euthanise. And before we move on, a quick note on head shaking. So if you see a chicken shaking their head a lot, it's not always a sign of an infection. Chickens, especially roosters, will actually shake their head when they're nervous or they're scared. If during this shaking behaviour the bird keeps an eye on you or whatever the source of their fear is, it's likely not an infection. Also, if they're not scratching at the head or digging in with their claws at their ear, that also indicates that this is a behavioural action. And this was very reassuring for me because since I got him, my rooster has been shaking his head. And my first thought was, oh no, I really hope he doesn't have like a respiratory infection. I actually assumed he was like trying to clear his nostrils. Um, But I did notice as well that when he did this behavior, he was watching me. So I just kept an eye on it. It started to decline. And so I wasn't worried as much and then I read this and I realized that it was declining because he's getting more comfortable around me all right so now we are going to move on to the final system to be discussed today which is the circulatory system so the circulatory system consists primarily of the heart spleen blood and blood vessels Blood makes up 6% of a chicken's body weight. And blood functions to transport oxygen, hormones and nutrients throughout the body, as well as carrying away carbon dioxide and other waste products, forming blood clots to minimise bleeding from wounds, carrying antibodies and infection-fighting cells, and helping to regulate body temperature. Chickens can have one of 12 blood types, and each of these blood types have their own set of antigens. Blood type influences chickens' resistance to disease, egg production and vigour, and hatchability of eggs. Some breeds are therefore more vigorous and less susceptible to disease than others. The heart is a four-chambered pump that keeps the blood circulating. The spleen functions to clean the blood of microorganisms, unhealthy blood cells and other debris. 
And the blood itself is susceptible to invasion of bacteria, viruses, fungi, protozoa, and other parasites that might get into it through mucous membranes, or if the skin is wounded in some way, or even in insect bites. There are actually some species of parasitic worms that temporarily travel through the blood on their way to the organ or tissue in which they're going to camp out and mature. And a quick note on something called septicemia. When an infectious organism enters the bloodstream and becomes generalized, basically it spreads through the whole body. This is called septicemia. And it's often noticed, sadly, when it's too late. So sudden death of a chicken that has a full crop is a typical indication of acute septicemia. Sometimes you'll notice other symptoms um, and you might have a chance to intervene. And these symptoms include weakness, listlessness, lack of appetite, prostration, and sadly, as I said, sudden, sudden death. Another condition that can occur that's related to the blood is anemia. And so when blood is deficient in quantity, such as if there's been blood loss, or quality, such as a low red blood cell count, this is what we call anemia. Now, red blood cells are called erythrocytes, and these are the most numerous of the blood cells, and they're responsible for transporting oxygen throughout the body and removing carbon dioxide and other waste gases. Hemoglobin is an iron-rich protein within red blood cells that carry oxygen and the carbon dioxide, and it's bright red in colour, hence the colour and the name red blood cells. Red blood cells rapidly become worn out and die, and they're replaced by new red blood cells. When disease or some other abnormality causes these cells to die faster, or for new cells to not regenerate, this results in anemia. Anemia can be caused by dietary copper or iron deficiency and also things like blood-sucking parasites such as mites and lice, aflatoxins, certain infectious diseases or sadly internal tumours. Symptoms include pale skin and mucous membranes, loss of energy or lethargy, weight loss and eventually death. Anemia from iron deficiency also causes faded plumage in red-feathered birds. Now, anemia is not actually a disease, but a result of some other condition. The one exception is viral disease infectious anemia, which is the only disease-based anemia. So because anemia is usually the result of another disorder, it's essential that you find the root cause in order to treat. And so again, this means very likely taking your chicken to the vet for testing. The good news is that chickens will usually recover with proper treatment. Now, there's a supplement for horses called Red Cell that's mentioned in the Chicken Health Handbook. And they say that this can be given to chickens who need a nutritional boost due to anemia. And you give it to your chickens in their drinking water at a rate of one teaspoon of the Red Cell per gallon of fresh water. Oh, my goodness. And that's it. That is me done for this episode. I hope you found it useful. I will confess that I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to be talking about next week. There is still some very interesting stuff in the Chicken Health Handbook about metabolism and certain disorders of the chicken that I might do. 
I've also been looking at my beekeeping books. I've still got some books on top bar beekeeping to go over, as well as a book called Buzz. Um, I can't remember the name of the author, but it's basically about um, when honeybees suddenly had this big resurgence in popularity and were being posted about a lot uh, by the media and online. It's sort of looking into what might have caused that and why honeybees are important. And I've had that book for a while, so I may maybe give that a read. I also have this really fun book called, um, oh, I think it's uh, Hens and the Art of Flock Maintenance, which is a parody book of uh, that thing, which was like Buddhism and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, I think was what it was called. Um, and again, that's something I've been meaning to read. So yeah, it's probably going to be something to do with books or who knows what crazy stuff's going to happen here that might take up <laughs> enough time for me to do an episode on. But anyway, uh, please check out my website. Uh, I will link it in the episode description. I'm also going to drop in the episode description that video I mentioned, as well as the crisis hotlines that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, just in case anyone needs them. Also, I know I've said it before, but I'm available. I'm not a therapist. I can't solve your problems. But if you feel alone, I'm always happy to chat. You can reach out to me through Instagram. Uh, my name over there is Homestead Hens and Honey. It's where I'm most active. I'm also available on Facebook under the same name. I'm on Tumblr, even um, even though I don't use it that often. And um, you can email me at homesteadhensandhoney, all one word, at gmail.com. Or just drop me a comment if you are listening to the podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening. Thanks so much for sticking with me. Um, when I uploaded my last episode, so two weeks ago, I saw that I had gone over 5,000 downloads. So I wanted to thank you all so much for making that possible. I am just so glad that I get to talk about bees and chickens endlessly to people who actually seem to enjoy it. It spares all my poor family and friends from listening to me go on endlessly and endlessly about why bees are incredible. And hens are pretty nice too. So please check me out on the social medias. Go forth to Turkey Day if you are in the US and eat as much pie as you possibly can. As someone who is gluten-free, I rely on you people to eat all these wonderful desserts so that I can live vicariously through you. I particularly love pecan pie and I recently saw a pumpkin pecan cheesecake recipe that looks like it will make me gain 50 pounds and be worth every single bite. So I'm really considering that dangerously. (laughs) So go forth, have a wonderful holiday. If you can't see your loved ones, I'm so sorry. I know it's hard for all of us, but hang in there. We are almost at 2021. Please, please, please let it be better. Take care of yourselves, wear your masks, wash your hands, be part of your community as best you can. And as always, hug your hens and then wash your hands. Take care of yourselves and happy Thanksgiving. Bye-bye.